Have you ever been tempted to lose heart? Have you ever been so discouraged with suffering and, and circumstances that you just, you just want to quit? Maybe, maybe the temptations for you to, to take your life. Maybe the temptations to just move away from life here. Maybe the temptation is just to indulge in some sort of sinful thing that can just take you somewhere else, even if just for a little while. Maybe the temptation is just to, to stop following Jesus. Have you ever, have you ever faced hardship that, that has, has led you to feel hopeless? Some of us feel that continually. All of us will feel it eventually. Life is full of, of affliction. And in some ways, this is especially true for those who follow Jesus. The way of Christ is the way of trials. It is the way of temptations. It is the way of tribulations. Jesus himself said, in the world, you will have tribulation. You'll have trouble. And then he said, but take heart. Take heart. I have overcome the world. So how do we take heart when we are tempted to lose it? That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 7 through 18 is, is all about. God is going to tell us this morning in this text to take heart because God has eternal purposes for your pain. Take heart. God has eternal purposes for your, your pain. Paul has written to this church because he loves them and he is helping them to follow Jesus. And they need encouragement and they need their, their perspective adjusted to see suffering that comes with following Jesus in light of eternity. The last time we were together, Jason helped us to see that God is, is doing this by, by showing us the glory of Christ, that he gives mercy to us by showing us the glory of Christ and then entrusting us with the ministry of the glory of Jesus in, in the gospel. And if we're going to walk in that way of trusting Christ and proclaiming Christ, we must know suffering will come. And now he wants to encourage us in that. Follow along with me, chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believe, and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Delray Baptist Church, God would say to us this morning, Take heart. Take heart because God has eternal purposes for your pain. We're going to unpack this, sec this text in three sections. Verses 7 through 12, our weakness shows God's strength. 
our weakness shows God's strength, followed by verses 13 through 15, where we see that future hope fuels gospel service, future hope fuels gospel service, and then finally 16 through 18, coming glory eclipses present suffering. Coming glory eclipses present suffering. Take heart because God has eternal purposes for your pain. Let's look first here at verses 7 through 12 that our weakness shows God's strength. In verse 7, he, he begins, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. It's pointing us back to what he was just speaking about. The, the, the treasure that is in jars of clay here, this treasure is the glory of of Jesus in the gospel. That's what the treasure is. It's the glory of Jesus seen and heard and believed and received in the gospel. The jars of clay are believers. Not just a band from the 90s. Was it the 90s? Whenever it was. 2000. I don't know. Back then. The jars of clay here are, are believers. So the treasure of the gospel is held in believers who are jars of clay. Now there's an irony that's supposed to be felt right away. Treasure is valuable, so you should, you should protect it. All right? I have a few valuables in, in our home, and we have a, a little safe that keeps it protected from thieves and fire and flood and that kind of stuff. It's, 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 under, it's under lockdown, right? So, so you would think that God would, would store this treasure in maybe a steel cylinder or some kind of golden vault. But that's not where God puts the most precious treasure that has ever been known. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Now, jars of clay, what are, what are they like? Well, they're vulnerable. They're, they're, they're fragile. They, they get chips and, and cracks, and eventually they will, they will crumble. So then why would God entrust the gospel to weak, fragile, breakable vessels like us. Well, verse 7, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God wants to make it very clear throughout the universe that the gospel's power comes from him alone. That the power itself of the gospel is the glory of Christ that seeing Christ in all of his radiance, that's where power comes from, not from the messengers who bring it. And our, our weakness actually proves God's strength. Weakness proves strength. We were in high school. Jason Seville and I used to throw parties at our house. And Jason, at his house, he had a, he had a pool table. And... People would always be down there playing, playing pool and betting, which I'm not saying you should do that. I'm just saying that's what they would do. Well, Jason's dad, Larry Seville, was a legend. Nobody beat Larry. And Larry would often come down after the party had been going for a while, and some people thought they were good at pool. And he would come, and he would say, I bet I could beat you with one hand. And they're like, nah, you couldn't do it. And Larry would come out there with one hand, and he would beat everybody <laughs> and take all their money. I think sometimes he uses his left hand. I'm not sure. But he would, he would come out there with one hand and whoop everybody. Now, why did he, just, why did he do that? Because he, <laughs> he was proving his strength through weakness. God is doing the same sort of thing. He says, I'm going to show my power. I'm going to flex by I giving the gospel to weak people. So do you ever feel weak and like, God can't use me? How many of you have ever felt like, I, God just can't use me because of whatever reason? How many of you have ever felt that way? That means you're set up for gospel success. The first requirement of being a useful gospel minister is to realize you're a loser. It's just a fact. Like, I mean, it's, it's true. This is, this is the prerequisite. You've got to be weak. There's got to be something wrong with you. So if you have it all together, you're the only person in the room, and nobody else is like that. And, and nobody has that. Everybody is set up for success in gospel ministry. Now, this is the opposite of how we think, isn't it? 
We're so prone to think, I've got to get it together in order to be useful for the Lord. The Lord's like, don't abide in sin, but your, your weakness is actually where my strength is, is magnified. And this even spills over into the way we think about ministry sometimes. Christians often assume sometimes that, that maybe if we could get an admired athlete to come to know the Lord or a famous celebrity, or some sort of powerful politician to come to Christ, then, then we'd make an impact for the gospel. Listen, yes, rich and famous people need Christ, and yes, God can use them, but do not get it twisted. God's marketing plan is not dependent on what is impressive to the world. He does not need strong, sexy, smart influencers for the gospel. That's not, his, that's not his, his way. He doesn't expand his brand like that. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians. Paul would tell the Corinthians this earlier. Because you've got to remember, the Corinthians were so worldly, they thought the stronger we are, the more useful we are for Jesus. Because that's the gospel of the world. Be strong, you can do it by yourself. And Paul keeps saying, no, 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 that's not the answer. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 1.26. Consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God says, I handpicked a bunch of losers. I mean, be encouraged. It's okay. It's all of us. God says that's, that's the way I do it. Now, again, he doesn't say not any, just not many. So, so sure, some among us have been on Jeopardy and won. I'll tell you later. So, Jason, we know. Uh, Becca Dish won Eagle Idol when she was at North Texas, okay? She's a great singer. Lyle Weinberger and Russell Blick and clerked for Supreme Court justices. Yes, so there are some. But the fact is, even them and all of us have plenty of weaknesses. We are weak. We're feeble. We're frail servants who God sustains in and through our suffering. That's where our strength comes from. It's when we're weak, we look to him and he helps us. And that's what he's showing here in verse 8. This, this, this way that we suffer yet are sustained. And these, these sufferings we're going to see here in verses 8 and 9, they're, they're all-encompassing, emotional, psychological, relational, physical. Listen, verse 8, we are afflicted in every way. The word means to be pressed in on. Circumstances are collapsing, but not crushed. So it's like God will allow you to be squished, but not squashed. We are perplexed. It, it means to be, to be un uncertain. It means to be overwhelmed with anxiety, but not driven to despair. God might allow your, your soul to spin, but you won't suffocate. Verse 9, we are persecuted. The word persecuted means to, to hunt, to chase down in order to do harm. He says, but not forsaken. God, God, God may allow you to be attacked, but not abandoned. You are never alone. We heard it read this morning. Nothing separates you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We are, verse 9, struck down. The word means to be knocked down by force, like a, like, a, like a boxer, knocked down by force, but not destroyed. God might allow us to be kicked, but not killed. Or, if killed, not ultimately lost to the grave. You do know that, right? That even, even if a believer dies, that they have not been defeated. A number of years ago, the Voice of the Martyrs, which is a publication that, that makes known the suffering of the persecuted church around the world, they put out a story about a, a church, uh, an attack on a church in Afghanistan. The church body had gathered that morning for the worship, and a bomb planted by Muslim terrorists ripped through the congregation. And many people lost their lives that morning while they were worshiping. And as they were clearing the, the rubble, one worshiper was found clinging to the text 
that the preacher was preaching that morning. The text that read, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Those believers literally clung to God's passages and promises in the midst of their horrific suffering all the way to the end. They were persecuted, but not forsaken. They were struck down, but not destroyed. Because death is not the end for the believer. We're going to see it later in our text. Jesus will raise them one day and say, I kept my promise to you. You were not forsaken. This is the sort of certainty that God's people have in the midst of whatever we face, that, that God is at work. And though most of us are not facing that sort of persecution at this time, some of us certainly will, some of us certainly have, we have our own sorts of suffering and oppression that can feel defeating and overwhelming and debilitating. And this text assures us that because of God's care and God's support, that our suffering is not ultimate and it is not final. God is working even in the midst of your pain and your suffering. We, verse 10, are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, he says. This means that everywhere Christians go, we embody the death of Jesus. The Christian life is a cross-shaped life. That's why Peter will say, don't be surprised when fiery trials come upon you. This is the way of Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean that everything is always hard for the Christian. Some Christians, everything is always hard. Like they're born in a very difficult place in the world, and they have only ever know suffering until they go and see Jesus. Some people, that is their lot. For others who that may not be the, what they're, they're facing, they have to actually battle through the temptation of prosperity and comfort, which is a trial sometimes in and of itself, trying to, to keep spiritually sober when everything is in one sense easy. But, but there must always be for the believer a readiness to suffer any loss for Jesus' sake. And that, that doesn't lead to, to, to misery. Look again, verse 10, so that we carry in the, in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. This is the mystery of walking with Jesus. As we walk with him, carrying his death, willingly enduring suffering and trial and tribulation for his sake, and, and to be clear, for his sake can mean directly because you're being persecuted because you're a Christian, or even the way you're enduring it is going to be you're enduring it like a Christian, for his sake, trusting him when everybody else would tell you to forget it, as we do that, we are filled with his life, his abundant life, his resurrection life, his joy-producing life is manifested in us as we cling to him in the midst of our suffering. Because when, you have to, when, when you're suffering, you cling to Jesus, he's all you've got. Verse 11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. That word given over, it's the same word used of what Judas and Pilate did to Jesus. They handed him over. What Paul is saying here is that as we follow Jesus, we will, like Jesus, be given over to thousands of little deaths along the way. For what purpose? So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our flesh. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And part of that plan is if you follow Jesus, you will be treated like Jesus, and you will share in the fellowship of his sufferings. Now you're like, that's, that's not real appealing. Well, it is if you understand the treasure of him. To where you say, you know what, I don't know what it's... I don't like to suffer, I don't like pain, I don't like to be persecuted, I don't like to be rejected, I don't like, I don't like any of that, but if I get him, if I know him, and know that he knows me, 
and know that nothing will separate me from the love of God in him, then I'll follow him no matter what. That's, that's the mantra of the Christian. That's what it means to be a Christian. At, at the center of being a Christian, it's I'm going to die to anything the world's got, and I want him no matter what it costs. It will be worth it because you get Jesus and you get made like Jesus. And you know his joy and his peace and his freedom. Again, John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You will know him and his peace. You can take, you can take heart in the face of tribulation because you get him. We trust and help each other to endure in that. And God uses that to bless others. That's what he means in verse 12. So death is at work in us, but life in you. This is the Christian ministry. It's the way of Christ. We call others to follow Jesus. And in the midst of us suffering and clinging onto him, he gives us grace that we then give to others. He sustains us by his grace. And then through all of our cracks as, as, as jars of clay, gospel life seeps out of us into others. God uses our frailty, and it's actually through our frailty that God's glory is manifested. I remember for me, there was, I've seen this in lots of people over the years, but there's one particular saint, her name was Mama Ruth. If you've been around here for a while, I've told lots of stories about her. She was a 99-year-old widow who lived in Denton, Texas, a Denton Rehab Center. That's where I learned to preach. Uh, I would go there and and preach to um, yeah, folks in the retirement home, and afterwards go and talk to some of them and struck up a friendship with Mama Ruth. She would, when I first began, she would often be able to come, but over time she just, she just had to stay in her room. Her body was riddled with arthritis. She was often bound to a wheelchair or forced to remain in bed. But you could see in her glory you been around somebody who you know, you know him, like her eyes would radiate the light. Like she was alive. In the, while her body was wasting away and she was suffering, you could see she knew him and she loved him and she clung to him. And I would just go in and sit and say, tell me stories. And she would tell me stories of the way she had trusted God over the years. And she would quote scripture and she would remind me of his faithfulness. Death was at work in her, but life in me. You see, our weakness shows God's strength. So don't despise your weakness. Allow it to draw you to Jesus and say, give me more of you. Which brings us to the second point. So our, our weakness shows God's strength. Now, future hope fuels gospel service. Future hope fuels gospel service. So in point two and three, he's very much going to be lifting our eyes to get an eternal perspective in the midst of our, our suffering. Verse 13, he says, Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. Paul says we have a spirit of faith that speaks because we believe something. We, we preach Christ because we believe in Christ. We call others to love him because we love him. We call others to look to him for help and for hope in the midst of a hopeless world because we look to him and have found help and have found hope. We believe, so we speak. One of the evidences that you know you're a Christian, is that you talk to other people about Jesus. His spirit fills you, and you're going to talk about who he is and what he's done. You, you speak about what you love. That's why it's easy for some of us to talk about sports or stocks or, 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 or business or whatever it may be. It's because it's, it's, what we, it's what we know, it's what we care about, it's what we think about. Talk about our family, talk about... Christians largely speak of Jesus. This is cool. Yeah, yesterday, yesterday, two days ago, whatever it was, a couple days ago, I was in. Uh, I went to Lowe's to buy something that I bought the wrong size. And anyway, that's another story. But while I was there, there was a gentleman, and uh, he, uh, I asked him. I said, "So where are you from?" I could tell that uh, he, he wasn't wasn't from here. And he said, uh, uh, "He said guess," which is always like you set me up, bro. <laughs> and uh, but he sounded like he was from Ghana. And I said, "Are you from Ghana?" He said, "Yes." He said, "How did you know?" 
I said, there's something about the people of Ghana that almost everyone I meet, they're, 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 they're happy. There's joy, and I can see it in you. And he said, yes, I'm from Ghana. And he said, have you ever been? I said, no. I said, um, I told him, I said, I said are, so are you a Christian or are you a Muslim? Um, and he said, he said, I'm a Christian. And when I told him, I said, I'm a Christian too. That man, he just, yes! And he just started quoting scripture and talking about Jesus. And like the man lost it. And it was amazing. It was so encouraging. I was like, he's, you could tell that man had the ghost. You know what I'm saying? Like he, the, the, he loved the Lord. I like more of this guy, right? It was so encouraging. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying when you know him, you're going to talk about him. You don't need to be, and this is where Satan wants you to be ashamed, wants you to be afraid, wants you to feel like you can't do it. It's Jesus. We talk about him because we know him. And he quotes here Psalm 116. And Psalm 116 is all about how God sustains people in the face of death. And the only right response, the psalmist says, is I'm going to praise him before all the peoples. He says, that's what we do. We do that same thing. That's gospel ministry. We've received the gospel treasure of the glory of Christ in these weak, frail jars of clay. And though we face horrific hardships as we walk in the way of Jesus, our faith is strengthened. And rather than be silenced in our suffering, we're compelled to speak all the more about Jesus. He's been faithful. Times have been hard, but he has been faithful. Life ain't good all the time, but he's good all the time. We're moved. Now, what gives us this confidence to speak about the glories of Jesus, even as we're being grieved by trials? Well, verse 14. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into his presence. There's something on the horizon, Paul says, that gives us hope. There's there's future hope that fuels gospel service now. And he says there's two things, the resurrection and the glory that awaits us. Did you catch it there? He says, knowing that, verse 14. If you write in your Bible, you can underline knowing that. It's really important. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us. He says the certainty of the coming resurrection compels us to keep going, to keep proclaiming Christ. Because what are they going to do to you if you, compel, if you, you proclaim Christ? Are they going to kill you? Well, then you go be with Jesus, and then he's going to raise you from the dead. He's like the, the resurrection gives us confidence to keep proclaiming Jesus. And knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will bring us with you into his presence. The coming resurrection then is followed up, as if the resurrection is not amazing enough, is then followed up by glorification, where, where God will make us jars of clay. He will transform us to, to be like Jesus in all of his glory, in all of his radiance, not that we become little gods, that's another false religion, but that we will embody the glory of God in a way that is, I don't know, glorified. Like, that's the word for it. There's some, the language just ends, and he's like, it'll be worth it. But, but he says, we know this is coming. Death and decay is not the end for the Christian. The coffin is not the end. The grave is not the end. The tombstone is not the end. Christ is the end. And then as he raised from the dead, he's going to raise you from the dead. And he, as God has promised, will make everything new, including you. He will glorify his people. Now, remember I told you to underline the knowing that? The reason I want to highlight that, that's why you read the Bible. You read the Bible so you can know him and you can know what he is doing and what he promises he will do. Because when you're getting, when life puts you in a blender and you're getting lit up, you're so disoriented, you, you need something to grab a hold of. And God says, grab a hold of truth, because everything else is going to fail you. But I make promises, and I keep promises. So what he does here, you can see Paul has tethered his heart to the resurrection and the coming glory. And he's saying, everybody else, this is why we we speak. It's because we know him. It produces courage in the midst of, of affliction. Future hope 
fuels gospel service. Verse 15, for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Did you notice the progression that he lays out here? Paul presents a, a, a progression. Grace leads to gratitude, leads to glory. Did you see that there? Listen again. For it is all for your sake that we suffer and endure, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving, gratitude, to the glory of God. He says God gives grace to us in Christ. And he gives grace to us as we walk with Christ, even through the valley of the shadow, shadow of death. And that produces gratitude. We're thankful for God's grace in the midst of our trials and tribulation, and it spills over into the lives of, of others. How many of you as a Christian have been blessed watching another Christian suffer? Not because you like to see them suffer, but the way they're suffering moves you to love Jesus more because you can see how precious Jesus is. How many of you have, yeah, like that, that is how God works. That's why, by the way, don't suffer alone. God gives us comfort in our affliction, chapter 1, so that we can be comforted and give it to others. We're not all strong at the same time. We bear one another's burdens when one's being afflicted, and the person who's being helped says, thank you for helping me, and the person who helps says, no, thank you for helping me. We help one another because we're both depending on grace. And as that happens, grace is given and gratitude goes up and we thank the Lord in the midst of it, which gives him glory. And the more that he's glorified, the more we want him and the whole, it's just a, it fuels the whole thing. That's how perseverance happens. We have a big view of him, that he's a benevolent, gracious, good God. So suffering does not slow down the spread of the gospel in our hearts or among the nations. In fact... Suffering provides an opportunity for more grace and more gratitude and more glory. In the second century, Christians uh, faced ferocious persecution. By the way, persecution is only increasing in our day around the world for faithful Christians. But in the second century, it was, it was no different, just as Jesus had, had promised. Believers were often beaten in public. They were chained in, in prisons for following Christ. At times they were fed to lions in the Colosseum. They were burned at the stake. Yet, despite all of those things going on, a North African church leader named Tertullian testified that God was working in the midst of the suffering of his church. He wrote, the more Christians were, quote, mown down, like cut down, the more they multiplied because the blood of Christians is seed. That's where we get that, that quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That was an Augustine remix of what Tertullian said. They, 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 as, as, as believers went out and their blood was shed, Satan and those tools that he was using to do it thought, oh, we're going to end the gospel, but it backfired and it actually used it, it, God used it to fuel more grace going to his people, which gave more gratitude, which led to more glory. And this is proven true throughout history. The more the Christians suffer for their faith, it seems to further gospel witness. And that's not just true then, it's also true now. There's a group of guys that I get together with for lunch, typically on Wednesdays. Um, we try to encourage each other, we pray for each other, we have a little text thread that we pray for each other this morning. This morning we were asking each other for prayer, I asked him for prayer, I told him I felt uniquely discouraged and weak this morning, pray for me. Thanks brothers, we prayed. One of the sweet things is that in that group, nobody's got it together, everybody's going through some sort of, of hard thing and they're trusting God and we're watching God work in the midst of our suffering. Junha, who's in the group, one day he said this about Jason Engler, and I don't think Jason was there that morning. He said that, because uh, we've, you know, we've been watching 
Jason and him testifying of Lauren and the way they're, they're walking through challenges with Olivia's battle with cancer. And just Junhoff said this about Jason. He says, the more he suffers, the more I see Christ in him. It was such a sweet, such a sweet word of encouragement. Like the more he suffers, the more I see Christ in him. That's what life is like with believers. This is why you don't pretend with each other. Satan wants you to be isolated, wants you to feel like you're the only one going through what you're going through. But what you need is you need other people around you that you're open with and honest with, and that you're, you're weeping with those who weep, and you're bearing one another's burdens, and you're able to point to and say, God's working in you, even when you can't see it. God is at work. And listen, this is one of the things I've, I've loved about this flock over the years. Thank you for the way that so many of you have suffered hardship in a way that is open, and the way you've trusted God. I have been greatly encouraged by so many of you. It would, it, would, it would use up our entire afternoon to point them out. But thank you. Please keep trusting Christ. We are almost home. Future hope fuels gospel service, which leads us to our final number three. Coming glory eclipses present suffering. Coming glory eclipses present suffering. So the result of grace given and gratitude expressed and glory beheld is encouragement despite circumstances. Verse 16, so or therefore, therefore we do not lose heart. Therefore, in light of everything he's just said about God giving grace in the midst of our suffering, therefore, we do not lose heart. The word for lose heart means to be discouraged, to, to give up the desire to go on. He says, we don't allow the feelings to overcome us. We fight discouragement. How? How? I want to fight. How do I do it? With perspective. God wastes nothing. Even though it's hard, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, he says. We do not lose heart. Why? Even the, the old man, the outer self, wasting away, new self being made new every day. The outer self, our bodies, our minds, our, our gifts, our abilities, our strength is wasting away. Some of y'all, the older you get, the more you're like, that's an amen right there. But you don't have to be older or chronologically advanced in order to feel that. Like this is life in a, in a hard world. It's, it's, we're wasting away. It means being destroyed, gradually uh, incapacitated, eaten up by atrophy is a way to, to render that. So even though that's, that's helping to us, Paul says he, he was experiencing what every one of us has and will experience. We grow weary in the midst of suffering. Age, affliction, accusations, all of the above. We are jars of clay and suffering saps us. But while there is a part of us that is fading, there is also, if you're in Christ, a part of you that is flourishing. Though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This is not some sort of dualism it teaches that the real you is the spiritual you. That's another religion as well. That's not what he's teaching here. He's highlighting the reality, though, that in this life, physically, you will wither and die, but that the, the inner you is being renewed, and one day there will be glorification that, that brings it all together. Okay, how then? How, how is the inner self being renewed every day? By the knowledge of Christ, of knowing him. Loving him, seeking him, and knowing that he's doing something in the midst of your pain. If you've tuned out, this is when you tune back in. You see that word for there in verse 17? This is the reason. This is why you don't lose heart. This is why you can trust that he is renewing you day by day in Christ, even though everything else, you're falling apart, but he is holding you together and making you like Jesus. 
4, the reason is that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Listen, if you are a Christian, your suffering has an expiration date. Evil will end. Death will be defeated. Suffering will cease. Glory is coming. He says someday you're going to see that all of your suffering is light momentary affliction. Now some of you hear him say light momentary. And for some of us that's a very hard pill to swallow. You might say light? Light? Do you know what I've you know what I've been through? I've been hurt. I, I've been b- betrayed. I've been violated. I've been lied to. I've been lied about. There's nothing light about my pain. And some of you may say, momentary? Momentary? My entire childhood was a nightmare. My adult life has been nothing but suffering. Years. Decades. Light? Momentary? And this is where I I would encourage you to know, first of all, that God cares about every bit of suffering. His word tells us that he, he catches every one of our tears in a bottle. He hears every prayer, every shriek of pain. He knows it all. What Paul is, is saying here, he wants us to keep it in perspective. And you've got to know this man, he knew suffering too. Listen to this. This is from chapter 11. Same guy. He says, I've had imprisonments. This is chapter 11, verse 23. I've had imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Five times I got beat. 39 times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. A fre- on frequent journeys in Danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from these things, there's the daily pressure of me, of my anxiety for all the churches. So on top of all my affliction, I'm bearing the burden of the afflictions of all of my brothers and sisters who are suffering. Paul seen some stuff. So what he, he says, light momentary affliction, he's not talking to somebody who's lived in some ivory tower and had a silver spoon in his mouth his whole life. This man's been, been through it. He was, he was speaking as a sufferer. Galatians 6.17, he says, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. He says, you got tattoos? He says, I've got tattoos. I've got marks of martyrdom all over me. My body's been just ravished with beatings for Jesus. When Paul says our affliction is light momentary affliction, he is not minimizing suffering. Rather, he is maximizing glory. He's not minimizing suffering. He's maximizing glory. He says there's meaning in your misery. There's purpose in your pain. There's reasons in your reeling. God wastes Nothing. And there are times in this life where you get a little glimpse of the way that God used something really, really hard for good. So, some of you have been able to, to see some of those sorts of things. There's some stuff that you wouldn't have signed up for. But a couple years later, you're like, you know what? I, could, I never want to go through that again, but I wouldn't trade that for the world because of what God did in me. How many of you got some of those stories? I encourage you to share those with one another. God uses that to encourage each other. You remember Joseph? He had that with his brothers, right? They betrayed him. They sold him into slavery. He'd been slandered, abused, mistreated. Yet, God used it all to put him in a position that he would feed the world in a famine and end up even saving his brothers from starving to death. And in the end, he could look at his brothers who had sold him out and hurt him in a way that family never should. He could look him in the face with assurance and say, Genesis 50, 20, you meant evil against me. But God 
meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You did evil. People did evil to me. But God never does evil. God only ever, ever does good. He only purposes good. While Satan and everything that follows his way purposes evil against the believer, God is always like some kind of sovereign judo using it to work it for good. That's what he does. He's sovereign. And he's only ever doing good for his children. God works all things together for the good. Doesn't mean all things are good. All things are not good in this world. There's a lot of bad. There's a lot of bad. There's a lot of bad. But God is always good in the midst of an evil world. And he is sovereign and he is working all of those things together in a way that in the end, when we see it, we will say, he's amazing. I think I've shared this before, but because we have a team in Turkey, it brought it to mind. A number of years ago when I went on a trip to Turkey, um, at the end of our time, we were in the marketplace kind of looking around for some stuff to buy to bring home. And we came, we came up to this, this place where there was, a, there was a, a woman who was weaving together a, a Turkish rug. And where I was looking, was this thing was hanging up. It was, it was huge, maybe not quite as big as the screen, but it was, it was big. And she was doing her weaving, however you weave rugs. And to be real, it was bad. It looked terrible. Like... All you could see was all these, these threads that just didn't make any sense at all. And I was like, well, it's art here, I guess. I don't know. I was just, I didn't know. And then she stepped back and she went like this. And she turned it around. And there's an amazing, just a beautiful design of flowers and like all this kind of stuff. You see, I, I could only see it from the other side. From my side, all it looked like was a bunch of, 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 of you know, threads that were all kind of mixed together and she was tying them off over there. I, I couldn't see, but she knew what she was doing. And when she turned that thing around and we saw it, everybody just clapped and was like, it was amazing. That's a rug in a market. How much more when we get to glory and we stand before the God who sees all, knows all, and has only ever been working things together for the good of his people, and he shows how every teardrop, every pain, every sleepless night, every betrayal, every broken dream, all of it, every ache, every pain, all of it was a stitch in what he was doing that in the end would give him glory, which is our joy. See, this is not just God getting up there and everybody's going to clap for him and be like, no, we will, but that then overflows, that's what we're built for. We're built, we love glory. That's why we love celebrities. We can't get over Tay-Tay and Kelsey and like all this stuff. It's like we, we, we're enamored by glory. That's Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. Okay, I just didn't know. So anyway, like we, we get enamored by glory. We like it. There's something about we're drawn to it. Why? Because there's a God who's glorious that made us to be enthralled with him. That's where joy comes from. But that's why all the counterfeit glories of the world are never going to satisfy you. Paul's saying, light momentary affliction. When you see what God is doing, all we're ever going to say is, it was worth it. It was worth it. In a way that right now, it totally makes sense for it not to feel like it's worth it. So if you feel like, but I don't feel like it's worth it. Of course. Yes. If, you, if it felt like it was worth it, that would just be extra grace. And there's sometimes he'll give that. But most often we walk by faith and not by sight. And this is why he gives these truths right here. And he tells us, verse 18, we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul says, do not tether your heart to hopes down here. Tether your heart toward the hope of Christ and his resurrecting glory that is coming one day. And grab promises to help you to remember. This is why you read the Bible. This is why you get promises. So start here. Like if you haven't memorized anything in a while, memorize verse 17. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory behind, beyond all comparison. Memorize that. Memorize Romans uh, 8.18. It's another verse that I've been, been thinking about a, a lot lately. 
I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Grab those promises. Put them in your heart. Remind each other of them. And as we do, our hearts will be lifted off of circumstances, not to pretend like they're not there, not to pretend like things don't grieve, that we don't have things to grieve about and it doesn't hurt, but we put our eyes on the one who's working all things together for his people. Y'all worry about this church? God wastes nothing. Take heart this morning because God has eternal purposes for your pain. And don't do it alone. You need one another to lock arms and to share both grief and testimonies of his grace. God uses that to help each other to persevere. Finally, I just want to say this morning, if you are here and you know yourself to not be a Christian, this day of coming glory is coming, but I just want to warn you that these promises are not for you. Not yet. There's other promises that await those who will not receive Christ in this life, who trade him for passing glories. On that last day, there will be a day of judgment where all things will be exposed. And because God is good, he will judge all evil, including your evil. And if you don't have someone who stood in your place to die and then to rise, you're going to stand in your own goodness and before a holy God. You're not going to be compared to any of us. You're going to be compared to him and all fall short and judgment will come. But if you hear this this day, this is God's mercy to you. You're not here by luck or chance. He wants you to know that he wants you. And he has given his word now for you to hear and receive and believe. So if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. and Flee to Christ. He delights in forgiving sinners. He loves to give mercy so that more people can have more grace and there'll be more gratitude and more glory for us all to share in forevermore. Don't lose hope, dear saints. We're almost home. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come before you and we pray that you would help us to endure trials and tribulations and suffering and persecutions. Would you help us to believe that, that we can take heart because you have eternal purposes in our pain. Would you help us to, to see the, the coming glory by faith in such a way that it would keep all of our trials and tribulations in perspective. Oh, God, we need help. We need hope. We thank you that Jesus loves to give us. We pray in his name. Amen.